Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn to Ivrim, the book of Hebrews, this week, and we're in the second chapter, and I'll get right into the body of the text. Ivrim, Hebrews, to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1, it is written, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at first began to be spoken by the Master and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Eloah, also bearing witness both with signs and with wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you draw close. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and with honor. And you have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see yet We see all things put under him, but we see Yahushua, who made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and with honor, that he, by the grace of a lower, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, from whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children who Eloah has given me. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, Satan, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, In all things he had to be made like brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful Kohen Haggadol, high priest, in things pertaining to Eloah, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tested, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Amen. 
Hebrews chapter 2. As you can see, there is a lot of body right there within that text. A lot, of a, a lot for us to delve into today. Therefore, verse 1, we have to give the more earnest attention to the things which were heard. The Hebrew word there, of course, is shema, which comes across in the Greek as akuo. And it means, of course, to hear and to do, to shema, to hear and to do, to obey, lest any time we should drift away. So our author is opening up with what? To the audience, be careful Be careful that you don't drift away, that you don't fall back into the religious system of the day. Can that pertain to us today? Do we have to be, especially this time of year, right? Don't we have to be guarded that we don't fall back, draw back into the religious system of the day? Even with the customary greetings that people will bestow upon you this time of year, you have to think about your response, otherwise you'll automatically fall back into old responses, right? Let's be honest, how many of you have said Merry Christmas to somebody who said Merry Christmas to you this year? Oh, no one's... Oh, we have one person being honest. Okay? I mean, you might have 40 years of cultural programming that's very hard when you're in the shopping line. But we have to be on guard as we've taken steps forward not to be drawn back by the pressure of the culture. And the author to the Hebrew audience right here is saying, don't drift back. Don't drift away. Don't fall back into the religious system of the day. Pay earnest attention. The Greek word there is proseo, and it means to bring a ship, to bring a ship into harbor. And I love this description because lest we drift out with the tide like a boat, we'll be what? We'll be just like a ship without a rudder that is tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. James 3, Ephesians 4. The danger, the danger of being carried downstream past what? A fixed landing place. That's what this word means. Don't be drifting away. Don't drift with the current. Don't drift past a fixed landing place of safety, a harbor, if you will, or a deck which you can moor to. So the author is really setting up and establishing that the Malkit Zedek is the safe landing place that you are to come into port to, that you do not want to drift downstream past this safe place because you will then get carried up with everything that's going on in the culture. And that's really what's being spoken. Pay earnest attention. The Greek word there is proseo, and it means to bring a ship or a boat into harbor. We have to be careful not to be carried downstream. Just from the opening verse, past our fixed landing place. We have to establish what the fixed landing place is. And in this day and age, With every wind of doctrine, I am so thankful that the Father has brought us to the Malkit Zedek priesthood and realized for me that this is the fixed landing place. 
This is the place where we take safety in the harbor and that we will not then drift away, we will not fall back and we will be not carried away with every wind of doctrine because it's an established, safe place foundation of truth. It's the Malkitzedic dock, if you will. The audience at the time, they were thinking about what? They were thinking about drifting back into the temple the hierarchy and the religion to fit in, to fit in. They were becoming indifferent to the priesthood of Malkitzedek and they were becoming indifferent to the salvation of Yeshua. Note, which we have heard, what does it say? Therefore we give heed the more earnest attention to the things which we have heard. Had they heard the Nicene Creed? No. That was 325 in the common era. What had our audience heard that they were paying attention to? Every Shabbat, they would have heard what? The communication of the Torah. So they needed to pay careful attention to what they had already heard, the Torah, not some new apostolic creed, not some Nicene creed that today when people are trying to interpret the book of Hebrews would have you think it is. But we have to go back to the Torah foundation, but our author is communicating to the audience, you need to rightly divide between the priesthoods of that foundation and come into the safe landing place of the dock and not get caught down, going downstream, back into the Levitical hierarchy of the temple system. And this is just our opening verse. They had to rightly divide and appropriate what? The higher priesthood, the higher calling of the Torah. Look at verse 2. For if the word spoken by heavenly malachim, angels, was firm, and every transgression and act of disobedience received a correct reward. So now our author is quoting and he's referring back to the Torah. It's not a direct quote, but it's alluding now back to the Torah, especially and specifically in the LXX, the Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. For if the word spoken by what? Heavenly angels was firm. So he's talking to his audience that was familiar with the fact that the scriptures communicate that the word was what? The word was made firm and spoken by heavenly angels. So now if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 2, specifically in the Septuagint text, this is how it reads. And he said, Yahuwah is come from Sinar and has appeared from Seir to us and has hastened out of the Mount of Faran with ten thousands of Kedes on his right hand were his angels with him. With his angels with him. Now, in the Masoretic text, if you have your King Jimmy, which is Masoretic base, it will read something different. Does anybody have that? Can anyone read that for me in the Masoretic text? You'll see a, a change. Where I wrote, 
where I um, um, communicated, read, on his right hand were his angels with him. What does the Masoretic text read? Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Right. So the Masoretic text says that with him on his right hand came thousands of his saints and went a fiery law for them. So our author is not referencing the Masoretic text, which of course was about 900 of the common era. Much later. He's referencing the older Septuagint text, which is, as I read... On his right hand were his angels with him. Now, if we go forward into the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, to Marseh Shlechim, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verse 38, we'll get another witness to see what our author is talking about that our audience was very familiar with that we are not so familiar with today. But our audience was Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is he that was spoken in the congregation of Israel in the wilderness with the Malak Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, who spoke to him on Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, and with our Avot, our fathers, who received the law to give to us, to whom our Avot, fathers, would not obey, but threw him from them, and their leaven out, their hearts turned back again to Mitzrayim, to Egypt. So again, the writer here is quoting or referencing Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. And we can see it spoken of again in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, that the angels, the angels were what? Present with the word of Yahweh and its deliverance. And this was very familiar with the audience of the time, but it's not so familiar with us today. Because these angels, like I spoke of last week, they were the field medics. They were the field medics that were delivered to what? To bind on the prosthesis, the prostheme, the added to, Galatians 3.10 and 3.18, added to book of the law. After the golden calf bomb went off and they broke the book of the covenant, then Israel was left damaged and the heavenly malachim, angels, came and administered the book of the law as the prosthesis to enable Israel to continue on until the great master physician, the Malkit Sedek, would come and it would tear away the prosthesis, the added book of the law, and return them to full Abrahamic Malkit Sedek covenant. He is the master physician. That's what the author's communicating. But we, his audience, was familiar with the field medic angels administrating the book of the law. But we're not familiar with that, so it's so foreign to us. But he was referencing the Septuagint text, 
Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. And we even see it in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. The angels were present at the administration of the book of the law because they are the field medics that come to the assistance of a damaged and broken Israel. Does that make sense? That's right there in the opening verses. I think it's fabulous. And just in case you want a little bit more book of the law context of angels and field medics delivering the book of the law or that prosthesis, again, we can read Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, where it is written, What purpose, then, does the book of the law or the law serve? We've already identified that it is the book of the law. It was added because of transgressions until the Zerah seed should come to whom the promise was made and heavenly Malachim angels through the hands of a mediator, they ordained it. This is very important, but we can skim over it because we're not talking. Angels to us are on a bloody Hallmark greeting card, right? Or they're little statues that you have to mow around in your garden. (laughs) But not to our audience, no. You see, I mean, it really does us a disservice, all of this Hallmark holiday nonsense, doesn't it? It really does us. It dumbs us down. And we don't realize it. In every area just dumbs us down so that then you don't realize it, but you're bringing on all that cultural garbage when you read that, oh, I just read about angels. And the culture has dumbed you down so much about angels that you're thinking of fluttering wings and mowing your, your garden. Right? It's crazy. It's crazy. Let's have a look at the Song of Moses again in the Septuagint version. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the children of men, he set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the angels of Elohim. Now, can anyone read that to me from the Masoretic text? You'll notice it's different. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It's from the Song of Moses. Can somebody read that out to me loud from the Masoretic? So the Masoretic text has it according to the number of the children of Israel, but the Septuagint that was in circulation at the time of this writing, has something very interesting. Something very interesting that will help us understand what is going on today. Did you catch that? What is going on today in the USA and other places all around the globe is this. What? The Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When he separated the children of men, he set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the angels of Elohim. This reading shines light on our present government reality. That's what it does. 
The nations have been distributed out amongst various angelic powers. And you can see that in Daniel chapter 10. We've got the prince of Persia. We've got the prince of Greece. And then we have Michael, Michael, the great prince. You see, some of these angelic governors are hostile principalities and powers to us. That's the reality that we are living in. Some of these angelic powers are hostile principalities and powers. They are the world rulers of this present darkness. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. We're seeing the manifestation. We are seeing the manifestation of these hostile principalities. They have taken over our government. They have taken over our nation. They are the globalists and the Illuminati. They are the dark force that is in fact empowering the cultic Illuminati and the globalist agenda. Never before with such unleashed evil power that there is right now. Never before. And how many people are so oblivious to this spiritual reality that is laid out before us? Our answers to our present crisis are found in the word of Yahweh. That is where we find our solace. That is where we find the answers to everything. So that we will read later on in the verses that we have overcome fear. We have overcome death because Satan is in subjection to the master sovereign Yahweh himself. And we'll read that in the 14th verse. But look at the second verse again. Every transgression and disobedience. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2. Every transgression and disobedience. Now, this is one of those verses that really lends me to believe that, like I said in previous teachings with the book of Hebrews, that I believe it actually was written in the Greek to a Hellenistic audience. And this is, this is just one, one of many reasons, but we can see here in the Greek we've got this wonderful, wonderful textual context and the way it plays out in the language is this. Pas, parabasis, parakeo. Three Greek words that linguistically they form poetry that if it was written in another language, you would miss that. But because it was written in the Greek, I believe these words particularly are phrased this way as a form of poetry. Let me explain. Our author, right here in the second verse, is communicating that disobedience to the gospel of Malkitzedek is more severe than disobedience to the book of the law. Disobedience to the gospel of Malkitzedek is more severe than disobedience to the book of the law or the Torah. The word paroche, disobedience here, means to hear incorrectly or disregard, well, it's just not important. Now, how many people do that today? Just blow it off. You know, disregard it. It's, it's not that important. It's not that important. 
the emphasis is truly on the severity of disregarding the Torah delivered by Melchizedek for the book of the law that was delivered by angels. You're going to listen to the book of the law that was delivered by angels, or are you going to listen to the Malkitzetic division of Torah that was delivered by the Malkitzetic himself? Way, way, which is the way, which is the law of weight, which is heavier. That's what the author is trying to communicate, showing the difference between the delivery method. One by angels, field medics, or one by the Malkitzetic, the master physician. Live with a prosthesis or live with a regrown limb. Do you see the distinction that's being put forth here? Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the master himself and was confirmed to us by them that heard him? Yahuwah also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with different nisim, signs and gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh, according to his own will. Now, after emphasizing the divine kingship of Yeshua, that's what chapter 1 was about, emphasizing Yeshua's divine kingship. But now the author is doing what? He's going in now, and he's going to talk about the mystery of Yeshua's composition. Or as some would say, his humanity. Verse 5. For it is not the heavenly angels that he have subjected the olam haba, this world of which we speak. But the katuv, the scriptures testify saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the ben adam, the son of man, that you visited him? So now what we're looking at is sovereignty over planet Earth versus what? He's talking about the, the sovereignty that man has over planet Earth. But today, what do we find in our culture? Apparently, planet Earth has sovereignty over you and I, right? Isn't that the flip? You are being programmed, your children are being programmed, that Mother Earth, planet Earth, has sovereignty over you. So much so that we're going to start to take away some of your rights because we need to protect the sovereignty of planet Earth. You see, and that's a total flip to what's being communicated here by the writer to the audience. You see, verses 5 through 9 speak of the sovereignty of man, the sovereignty of man over planet Earth. Let's get that very clear. Verses 5 through 9 will start to speak of the sovereignty of man over planet Earth. Sovereignty was promised to man, not to angels. That's what he's communicating. Sovereignty was promised to man, not to angels, Genesis 1 verse 26. It wasn't planned to the world, it wasn't promised, excuse me, to the world leaders that just met in Paris two or three weeks ago, was it? But they would have you think it is. 
You see, the struggle we're having with the globalists that are satanically inspired is that they're using global warming as a tool for Satan because Satan knows what? That knows what? That he lost ultimately to Yeshua. But we have to remember he also knows that we lost the right to rule after the fall, didn't we? And he knows that. He knows that we lost the right to rule at the fall. But what he and his minions fail, fail absolutely fail to realize, is that under the Malkitetic priesthood, we have gained the title deed. We have gained the title deed. They don't realize that. S.A. Tan doesn't even realize that in its full finality, that we have actually gained the title deed. The battle is over the fight to exercise it. Will you and I exercise it? That's the battle. We have the title deed in the master, but will we exercise it? That's what the battle with these principalities is all about. Yahushua won back for us the sovereignty by dying and paying the death penalty position of Genesis chapter 15. But there's some crazy stuff going on in the world today. Some crazy... They fake the data. You do know that. They fake the data. Fake data actually exposes and proves that global warming is a science fraud. It's a science fraud. The satellite data that supposedly shows a warming trend over the last hundred years has been fraudulently altered to show a warming trend when none exists. And I think we've got a graph that we can put up on the screen to communicate and demonstrate that very clearly to you. What the data really shows are an obvious cooling trend over the last hundred years. You see, the globalists are using fraud, literally. They should be prosecuted and imprisoned for fraud. They are using fraud upon a dumbed-down, stupid society where you and I, when we question global warming, they think we're stupid. Yet the reality is we're the ones with the statistics and the education and the stupid ones are the ones that believe it based upon MSNBC and they've never studied it. They've got no documentation and they literally are playing Chinese whispers and they're smart. What did Yahweh say? He said that he would put them to shame by people like you and I. Because we have the testimony of the word of Yahweh which makes us wiser than serpents. Wiser than serpents. Because we're starting to think outside their imprisoned paradigms. Imprisoned paradigms. 
Let's put that, that graph back up there because I really want you to look at that. It's absolutely outrageous. They are using fraud upon a dumbed-down society that expects what they say without question. They expect what they say to be true without question. So that they then can enslave the population under a system of absolute tyrannical behavior and control. In this graph, you can see global warming is a massive scientific hoax that's being perpetrated for political reasons. You see, what the couch potato, what the couch potato doesn't realize is that mainstream media is nothing more than a puppet for totalitarian government. That's what they don't realize. Now, that graph demonstrates what's called the RSS satellite data sheet. Now, what that means is it's the remote sensing systems satellite data sheet, and it shows no global warming at all for 200, 222 months from December 1996 to May 2015. More than half of the 437-month satellite record. So, let's think about this. We have got youth that is being programmed and they believe unquestionably that there's global warming, yet there has been no, no global warming in their life if they were born 1996 and afterward. Yet it is that generation that believes in global warming more than any generation in the history of mankind. And the facts demonstrate that there hasn't been any since 1996 in that generation. I mean, can you see how satanically inspired lies that it truly is? Yet, I and you would be the foolish ones for even communicating this. Right? Because you are going against volumes and volumes and volumes the decibels are way up, and yet we're right down here. So what do they listen to? The louder voice. The louder voice. The entire RSS data sheet from January 1979 to date shows global warming at an unalarming rate equivalent to just 1.2 degrees Celsius per century. We should get our knickers in a twist over that. Since 1950, when a human influence on global temperature first became theoretically possible, the global warming trend has been equivalent to 1.2 degrees Celsius per century. The global warming trend since 1900 is 0 0.8 degrees Celsius per century. This is well, well within the natural variability and may not have anything to do with you and I. 
These are natural variables. Natural variables. The oceans, according to the 3,600-plus Argo bathymyograph buoys, are warming at a rate of just 0.02 degrees Celsius per decade, which is equivalent to 0.23 degrees Celsius per century. But those that would champion global warming, they don't even know what I just said. You see? Because they have no idea what I just said. Because they believe just because it's said. Whereas I believe fact, data, textual evidence, language, history, solid, concrete things you can put your hands into. That's what the people of Yahweh do. But not the dumbed down masses. They'll listen to the loud voices, but they won't listen to the still small voice and the reason of the word. Where does most of the planet's CO2 come from? It comes from India, China, America. That's what they would have you believe, right? Well, the CO2 is from India. Oh, the Chinese, and the, but America, we have, we have got to drive a Prius. No. Most of the CO2 comes from the rainforests of South America, Africa, and China, where it's supposed to come from. You see, that's factual. You've got to love Al Gore, though. Don't you? Al Gore predicted the North Polar ice cap would be completely ice-free in five years. Gore made this prediction to a German audience in 2008. He told them that, quote, the entire North Polar ice cap will disappear in five years. And he's still flying around in his airplane, burning up fossil fuels, talking about this, and nobody's holding him to account for what he said to the Germans in 2008. Arctic ice is actually up 50% since 2012. Somebody needs to tell Al Gore about that. Now, this is really fascinating Does anybody remember the founder of the Weather Channel? The founder of the Weather Channel, John Coleman. This is what John Coleman said. The founder of the Weather Channel. Quote, global warming, the greatest scam in history. (laughs) Insisting the theory of man-made climate change was no longer scientifically Credible. Why don't they trot him out? Because they don't want his voice to be heard. The founder of the Weather Channel saying that the scientific data proves that it is no longer scientifically credible. It is a global warming hoax and scam. John Coleman. You see... It's a political and environmental agenda item. That's all it is. It's a political and environmental agenda 
item. But the science is not valid. The science is not valid. It's the enslavement of the West. Because why? The third world countries, they would be exempt, right? So it's actually the enslavement of the West because the third world countries are exempt, as are China, as are India. They're exempt from the globalist insane laws on global warming. You see, our author knows that the audience needs to understand that the planet is under subjection of man. Man is not under the subjection of the planet. It's the reverse of the curse. That's what S.A. Tan is trying to do. Use going all the way back to the first chapter in Genesis. Taking Yahweh's truth and twisting it. And that's what these angelic, demonically inspired angelic principalities, the globalists are doing upon us today. That's just a side note from a few verses. But I think it's important to communicate, yes, what was going on with the audience, but also what relates to us as the audience today. Don't you think? Because we cannot be subject to the globalists and their fake global warming when in reality the earth is subject to our biblical land stewardship. Does that make sense? Um, Let's just go on a little bit now. In fact, I think we're going to now look into what the author talks about and is going to explain about the composition of Messiah. I have a video that we're going to boot up for you for a minute because before we do, though, I want to explain this. I think the biggest stumbling block, the biggest, biggest stumbling block to a Jewish audience is the composition of Messiah or the deity of Jesus. And that is because Christianity has inherited proto-orthodoxy. Because now what we're going to be getting into in a minute is what's called Christology. Christology. And, of course, the, the, the winner in history, the victor, gets to write the rules. It's no different with Christology. Proto-orthodox Theology is today the victor when it comes to the composition of Messiah. And we have now Christian and Christian doctrine is the Trinity. And you try and explain that to the Jew and they're like, what? It's the biggest stumbling block because the Trinity comes from the Greek pantheon of gods. Because the biggest worshippers were, of course, the Greeks that loved to make the all of the statutes and the figures, they worship men as gods. They were, the Greeks worshipped men as gods. Now we're going to see why this is the biggest stumbling block to the Jew. And we are going to clear this up very succinctly just in a few verses today by going to the scripture to show you how Yeshua can in fact be the very bosom of Yahweh and deity, yet also clear up the problem and the stumbling block that you're going to see in this video. So let's listen to this just for a moment. That's not what we're saying. The New Testament is very plain. The Word, the way he reveals himself and speaks and manifests himself, the Word was made flesh 
and walked among us, and we see his glory. So Jesus we, is not divine? So you don't believe Jesus is divine? He is divine, but... but no, you're denying Christianity. No, I'm not. He, he is divine without question. Here, here's the point. So he is or he isn't? Is Jesus God, yes or no? If you mean God, Elohim, in terms of he is the Father, no, the Son, and the Spirit... When you say is Jesus God, do you mean is he the, the I will Father, say categorically, Son? Jesus was not God. Worship him as God is absolute sacrilege certainly from the position of the Hebrew Bible. Look at this verse over here, Deuteronomy 6.4. Moses is about to die, and he warned, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 4.15. He's about to die, and this is what he says to the Jewish people on the last day of his life. Quote, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Sinai out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. Moses says, watch out for the ultimate form of corruption, which is to worship a man as God. You don't believe I'm God. And if I said I were, you'd think I was crazy. No man can be God. Most Christians believe that, which is why I don't understand how they could accept the, de the deity of Jesus. It's, it's, it's simple. It's because it is not the way you're presenting it as if God ceased to be God in heaven and then came down and walked down the earth and ceased to be God. Jesus God's didn't walk on earth? Of course he did. He, listen, God's unity is complex. That's the point you're missing. In Genesis 18, the text says plainly, he's addressed as Yahweh, that he's walking and talking in the flesh with Abraham. Does that mean that? No, that's your interpretation of it in your no, book. And that's, that's a straight reading of the text. No, that is absolutely incorrect. Three angels come. You interpret that as a trinity. It says clearly that they're angels. But, Where does it say but, that they're but we angels? But we, we, can, we can disagree about verses. It says three angels I'm, come to lot. You see, Mike, here, here's the problem. We can they, disagree all we want about the interpretation of verses. But... The idea of worshiping a man is God, that's what the Greeks did. We don't worship. This is pure paganism. I mean, let's God. face it, worshiping a man is God is what Judaism came to replace. We and Christianity comes back and says, God. why haven't you guys accepted that Jesus is God? And our answer is, that's going backwards. Our answer is, that's going backwards. What a confusion. Even these, these guys, just listening, you could... Oh, that's a good point. He, yes. Let's address this. And let's clear this up through Scripture. Because the biggest stumbling block is you're telling me that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross to save my sins. So therefore, Yahweh condones human sacrifice. What? Isn't that what you're saying? Well, no, that's not what I say. Well, well what are you? Do you see? When I was at Calvary Chapel, I remember going on the, um, the Sea of Galilee with the acoustic guitar. I wasn't playing it, but I was singing. And as you all know, I've got a fabulous voice. Season, don't laugh. But we'd sing about the God-man. That was the Calvary Chapel. Oh, the God-man. Now, I'm the God-man? I mean, that is pagan to its very, very core. So what on earth is going on with the composition of Yeshua? This is the question. Did Messiah inherit the kingdom of Elohim? Did he? Did Yahushua inherit the kingdom of Elohim? Answer that question. Give me a resounding yes or resounding no. Good. 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of Elohim. Neither doth corruption inherit corruption. But what did you just say? 
you just said that you believe that Yahushua inherits the kingdom of Elohim. But the text clearly says that what? Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of Elohim. So I'll ask you again. And now you're getting a little concerned about what I'm going to teach and you look very confused. As you should. As you should. So, did Yahushua have flesh? First Yochanan, First John chapter 4, verse 2. By this shall you know the Ruach of Yahweh. Every Ruach that confesses that Yahushua HaMashiach has come in the flesh is from Yahweh. And every Ruach that does not confess that Yahushua HaMashiach has come in the flesh is not from Yahweh. And this is the Ruach, in fact, of anti-Messiah, which you have heard was coming and is now already in this Olam Hazet. So he who denies that the Master Yahushua has not come in the flesh is the spirit of anti-Messiah. If you deny that he's come in the flesh, you are the spirit of anti-Messiah. So yes, he did have flesh. We acknowledge that truth. Ah, but now we have to dig a little deeper. Yes, Messiah had flesh, but where did his flesh come from? Because how does the Bible define a human? How does the Bible define a human? Bereshit, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, is the biblical definition of a human being. And Yahweh Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground... And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a high nefesh, a living soul. That is the biblical definition of a human being. Forget science. Forget what the world would tell you. That is truth. That is where we'll begin to clear up the mess that we just saw on the YouTube. And to clear up the mess that I, even our author was addressing, which is the early formation of Christology. Yochanan, John, chapter 6, verse 48. We're looking at the flesh of the Messiah and its origin. Because if we can nail down the origin of the flesh of Messiah, we can start to clean up this God-man theology, which is the biggest stumbling block to the Jew. I am the Lechem Chaim. I am the bread of life. Your Avot, your fathers, did eat manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. This is the lechem, the bread that comes down from the shamayim, the heavens, that man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread who came down from the heaven. If any man eats of this bread, he shall live forever and ever. And the lechem, the bread that I will give, is my flesh. 
which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore argued among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh, his flesh to eat? You see, they didn't understand. Then, and we can see that from the video right there. They still don't understand. That was an Orthodox Jew speaking to a Jewish believer in Yahusha. And the moderator was a Jewish believer in Yahusha. But the Orthodox Jews still didn't understand as we see in our text here. Then Yahushua said to them, Amen, Amen, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If Yahushua's flesh came from the dust, he was just instructing them in cannibalism. Okay? That's simply not so. Because his flesh comes from the heavens. A human being is defined by his flesh coming from the dust. So we have something now that is a huge, as Paul says, a sowed, a deep mystery. A deep mystery. And it really goes into, for clarification, the laws of Kilayim. Those of you that may know, the laws of Kilayim in the Torah are the laws of mixing. You shall not sow your field with what? Two diverse seeds. So is Yahweh going to break the laws of Kilayim and sow his field with two diverse, diverse seeds? A seed of humanity and a, a seed of deity and combine them together to have the God-man? He's going to go against his own laws. Not possible. He will not violate his own Torah, the laws of Kilayim. You shall not mix your garments of wool and what? Linen. Flax. Because it would tear apart. He's not going to violate those laws, and he's not going to do it with his son either. So we're now we're going to dig into this, because it's extremely important. Yahushua's flesh had no dust nature. It had no evil inclination. His flesh had no dust nature, thus no evil inclination. Yahushua, the Marya. The Marya means the man from Elohim. The Marya in the Hebrew, the man from Elohim. His flesh, his spirit, and his blood were from where? Flesh, spirit, and blood were from where? From Yahweh. That's where his flesh, his blood, and his spirit were from. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the Torah could not do, because it was powerless regarding man's weak flesh, Yahweh sending his own son in the likeness, key word is in the likeness of that same sinful flesh and for sin condemned man's sinful flesh by means of his own 
flesh. Do you see the juxtaposition right there? The likeness doesn't say identical match, does it? It says the likeness or appearance of. He did have flesh, for sure and for certain, otherwise you're the spirit of anti-Messiah. But we're defining where his flesh came from. John 6, we're defined it's come from heaven. Therefore, we are not talking about the biblical definition of a human being, the flesh from the dust. He's not talking about you being cannibals. He's talking about you, what, inheriting the kingdom of Elohim. Because dust nature, flesh and blood, does not inherit the kingdom of Elohim. We've established this. This is crazy talk to most people in religion. I am offending and tripping all over your trinity right now. You see? Which comes from the Greek pantheon of gods. Oh, well, it's an egg and a shell and a yolk, but it's ice, water, steam. I mean, who've heard those arguments, right? Try that with your children. They'll look at you like you're nuts. What? But once we're all grown up and we've gone to seminary, oh, we, oh, we accept it, right? <laughs> First Corinthians 15:45. Listen to this text. It will blow your mind. First Corinth it's right here. 1 Corinthians 15.45, and so it is written, the first Adam, that's Adam himself, the first Adam was made a living being. The last Adam was made a life-giving spirit, a haim-giving ruach. But the spiritual Adam was not first, but the natural Adam, and afterwards the spiritual one. The first man is the earth, is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the master, Yahuwah, from the heavens. Look at the juxtaposition right there. The first Adam is from the dust, earthly. The second Adam is where? He's just defined his flesh again, from the heavens. Superiority, the greater over the lesser, and is the earthly, so also are those that are earthy, and is the heavenly, so also are those that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. Now, this I say, Israelite brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of Yahuwah. Neither does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, he's telling us now, this is going to be really difficult for you to grasp. In fact, you won't grasp it for 2,000 years because you're going to be so bogged down with this crazy thing called a trinity which came from the Greek pantheon that even the Orthodox Jew today will still be confused. And when you get into a debate on YouTube, everyone's going to be confused. Because you're not going to the scripture to find truth. You're going to theological seminaries and regurgitating what your forefathers have told you. Whether you're an Orthodox Jew or a Christian. But if you just go to the scripture and we break it down and we look at Christology and we don't look at the victor, but we look at some of the other sects and belief systems of the first century, we will find the truth is in the word of Yahweh. 
Yeshua has no dual nature. He is not part God and part man. There is no mixing of seed that would violate the laws of Kilayim. There is no dual, as you'd say in America, dual. Because when I say dual, you're like, what? <laughs> dual? There is no dual nature. There is no human sacrifice. You cannot say that Yeshua is man. He is 100% God and 100% man and that he was nailed on a cross. Firstly, your mathematics is abysmal. He can be 97% God and 3% man, but he can't be 100% God and 100% man. Your math sucks. And America... You're not even allowed to say that, sorry. But in America, our math is terrible. I mean, if you look at the statistics of, of math, people that do math in the world, Americans, most probably the British do, uh, have the worst math. But Americans really do. You know, if you want to do some maths, then you go talk to somebody in Japan, okay? <laughs> okay? I love it when, when Americans like, start to do math. You're like, oh, Okay. Especially when it comes to the calendar. You know? You're like, hmm. Okay. All right. Philippians 2.7 communicates that Yeshua came in the likeness of men. Philippians 2.7, in the likeness of men. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible Elohim, the Bachor, the firstborn of all creation. So he is the image of the invisible Elohim. Now, the Orthodox Jew would take issue with that. He, Yahuwah has no image or form. Well, why then do you see all of these anthropomorphisms, is the highbrow religious term for it, in the Tanakh? You see the right arm of Yahweh, that he is eating, that he has hands and feet, and a face. You see these anthropomorphisms throughout the Tanakh. So this isn't foreign to the Jewish audience of the first century. Colossians 2.9. Did I just say Colossians toenail? It sounded like it. Colossians 2.9. He, <laughs> he does have toenails too. Colossians toenail 2.9, he dwells fullness as deity in bodily form. Philippians 3.21, our lowly body will be transformed into his glorious body. That dust body will be transformed into the heavenly body. That's the, how do you think that Yahushua was able to transfigure? You try that sometime. <laughs> different flesh, different flesh. Second Corinthians 5.2. We're to desire to be clothed in our habitation from heaven, which is a body made in heaven. Matthew 16 verse 12. From heaven, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Matthew 16, 12. Lazarus 
is put in the grave for four days. And he stinketh. And rigor mortis they're concerned about. Yet the Messiah is put in the grave for how many days? Three days. And his body sees no corruption. No corruption. Why? Because his flesh is from heaven. Psalm 16.10, Acts 13.36. Yahushua, like we see of the Father in the Torah, is anthropomorphic, meaning he's attributing human characteristics to something that is non-human. Dust is from the earth. His flesh is from the heaven. He is attributing human characteristics to something that is non-human, such as deity. Better, it is the anthropomorphic Messiah. Psalm 49, verse 5. No man can redeem his brother. And this is one that the Orthodox Jew always comes with. You're telling me that Yeshua, your Messiah, died on a cross and that he can redeem you? Yes, that he's fully God and fully man. Yet the Tanakh says no man can redeem his brother. Now you can answer that because he is not what? From humanity, the dust. His flesh is from the heaven and he can do the work of the master creator because he himself is the master creator. Psalm 49 verse 5. No man can redeem his brother. Nowhere in scripture does it say Yahushua has to be of dust. Nowhere in scripture does it say as Christianity says, and it's simply not true, but many of well, he had to be human so that he could redeem humankind. How many of you have heard that? Oh, where, where, where does that verse exist? But we believe it, right? Because it's called rhetoric. He had to be of the same composition of, as us so that he could redeem us. Sounds good. <laughs> now we're in a... You see, you see this faith that we're in? It is huge paradigm shifting, isn't it? It's these big blocks, and it's like Hebrew block logic. It's not getting bugged down in all of these theological details that just keep you enslaved. But it's standing back and making these questioning these big paradigms that then are the key to unlocking a huge segment of Scripture. That's what it is. Questioning these huge paradigms that are then key to unlocking your slavery. We do it in the Scripture. We do it with the globalism as well. Numbers chapter 13, 23, excuse me, verse 19. This is a famous one. Now, you really have to be careful. I had to be very careful when I was typing this out. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. 
I was trying to type out the Hebrew word kazab, and I was trying to type out the Hebrew word nakhan. And my spell check kept coming up, and I, I fought my spell check, and I fought, I'm so glad I caught it, because I was about to read something like this, that Yahweh is a kebab and Yeshua is nachos. Because every time that I typed kazab, kebab kept popping up. And every time I typed nachos, nachos started popping up. And I'm like, if I didn't catch this, Apple would have me calling the creator a kebab and his son nachos. And you'd all be hungry. No wonder they took a bite out of the apple. I think it's deliberate. Numbers 23 verse 19 El ish kazab ben adam nacham. Elohim is not a human being. And the Orthodox Jew always goes to this. Now, actually, in true honesty, they actually take this out of context to say, to say what they're going to say. Because if we actually look at the context, the issue is not actually the composition of Yahuwah. It is the character of Yahuwah as the true fulfiller of promises, that he's not going to lie. So in reality, when you look at the whole context, it's talking not the composition, but the character but the Orthodox Jew rips out the context and says, see, Elohim is not a human being. And it's, it's paraded and trumped before many as a verse. But we have now cleared up this verse, right? Because we have decided, seen through Scripture, that in fact, his flesh doesn't come from the dust. So in fact, by the biblical terms, he is not a human being. We're not denying his flesh, though, because that's the spirit of anti-Messiah. But we're understanding the biblical distinction because we have a hope that we are going to be raised from this death and this dust and that we are actually going to have the same composition of the Messiah. That's the goal. You see, the goal isn't that we're going to have earthly flesh that's going to be incorruptible. The goal is that we are going to transcend this earthly temple into the heavenly temple through the master of the Zedek order and the priesthood. So, yes, he had to come ultimately in the composition from heaven because that's the goal, to get us from the dust to the heaven. Let me continue on now. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then was Yahushua led up by the Ruach into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Well, hang on a minute. So now the King Jimmy is telling you that the Messiah was tempted. And I see the double talk. When you start to break it down, it doesn't make sense. Christian doctrine will say, yes, Yeshua is God. But he was tempted in the wilderness, right? So Yeshua is God, he is deity, and he was tempted in the wilderness. Yes! Yes, he was. Okay. Well, now we'll turn to James 1.13, and we find a contradiction. Well, which is it? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by Yahweh. For Yahweh cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. So which is it? 
Do you see the conundrum that we're in? Don't attribute the works of S.A. Tan to Yahweh. Don't attribute the works of S.A. Tan to Yahweh. Is Yeshua Yahweh in the flesh? Is he? You're all very nervous. You don't want to say a thing. Is this a trick, trick, trick question? There you go. Yes. Yahusha is Yahweh in the flesh, but where is his flesh from? Exodus 24, verse 11. The very last verse of the book of the covenant before. The very last verse of the book of the covenant is Exodus 24, verse 11. And we're going to find the very composition of Messiah right there at the covenant-confirming meal of the book of the covenant. And what do we find? Yeshua is the very etzem, the Hebrew word there, ein zadi mem sofit. Ein zadi mem sofit, the very bone of heaven. The very bone. The word there means bone. You know what the bone does? What does the bone do? That's where what's made? Blood, marrow, the bone. Yahusha is the very bone, etzem of heaven, at the Malkitzedic confirmation meal. This is huge. Don't let it just go by you. Meditate, or as the writer of the Psalms would say, Selah. Shemot, Exodus 24, 11. Yeshua is the very bone. Etzem, Ain Zadi, Memso, feet. He is the bone of heaven. His very substance right here. Proverbs 8, verse 23. Yahusha was not established in human flesh. He was established everlasting before there was ever dust of the earth. Read it, Proverbs 8.23. And this is summation for you. Yahusha is 100% Yahuwah, 0% man, cloaked in humanity, yet not from humanity's origins dust. He is the flesh and bone from heaven, which enables him to transfigure our flesh and set us down at the Malkitzedic confirmation meal, the wedding supper of the Lamb, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, the bone, the etzem, the bone of heaven, just as in the Exodus 24, 11, Malkizedic confirmation meal. That's where we're wrapping this all up to go back right to perfection. But you've got to shed the baggage. Who came in with the saddlebags? You've got to shed the saddlebags. Show me those saddlebags. That's some crazy stuff walking around with that, isn't it? Crying out loud. Let me try those bad boys on. Look at this stuff. 
you believe this? Can you imagine walking around like this? God, crying out. What are you doing? What you got in here? Can I look in your handbag? Look at this stuff. You know what? If I was walking around like this, Back? Oh, I'm back. Back on sound. Let me find that. Somebody had a question about Exodus 24, verse 11, and the bone, the etzim, the bone of heaven. Here we go. Verse 10. Let's go back to verse 9. Then Moshe went up also, Aharon, Nadab, and Avihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the Aloha of Israel. And there was under his feet, there's an anthropomorphism right there, under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was the very etzem, the very bone of heavens in its clarity. I most probably blew the batteries with the passion and zeal. Or maybe you've got some kind of Faraday enclosure in that bag. All right, check her bag, Steve, on the way out. See if there's anything we can use. Yes. Yes, thank you. Got it. If you look at the Hebrew, the, the, depending on your translation, and it was the, that word there in, my, in, the, in, a, in a King Jimmy, or I think, or a New King James, it would be very. But it's really etzem. It's the bone of heaven, the very bones of heaven. You see, that's a huge translation blunder that's not important to the pantheon of God, God theology. It's just not important. But it is a foundational principle for understanding the substance of the Messiah and, in fact, connects all the way back, comes from the past all the way to the present and our future, that our ultimate redemption is at the Malkitzedic confirmation meal. The Hebrew word there, you can look it up in your own time. Etzem, ayin, zadi, memsofit, means the bone of heaven. We see there the manifestation, the anthropomorphism. We see Yahushua, the very bone of heaven, the one there who has enabled us and will transfigure our flesh. He transfigured his flesh, and he will set down with us at the Malkitzedic 
covenant-confirming meal, just as he did right there in Exodus 24, 11, we will find ourselves, if we persevere, if we press in, and if we keep questioning these big paradigms to come into truth, we'll find ourselves at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we will be able to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and we will not be committing cannibalism, because we will be partaking of the heavenly Malkitzedic bone of heaven, the very substance in covenant, just as they were in covenant in Exodus 24, 11. If you were to read Yochan on John chapter 6, you focus in on that chapter, specifically the 41st verse, the 58th verse, you can see that the scripture testifies where the master's flesh comes from. I'm not making this stuff up. It sounds outrageous, but you know what's really outrageous is the lies that we've been fed for so many years without questioning. Ephesians 3.8, this is... Truly, the unsearchable riches that Paul was proclaiming amongst the nations. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even in the seventh verse. This is dreadful. Can we soldier on? Are we sure? Okay, I, I've got the energy. I got the batteries. Nobody's going to answer any of my questions because you think that I've got trick questions. But I'm going to ask them anyway and just pretend you're going to answer them. John will answer. He's brave. Was Yeshua born of a virgin? Oh, thank goodness. All right. Not on December 25th. Not on December 25th. Thank you. Clarification. Thank you. Thank you. So do you believe in the virgin birth? Yes, all right, okay, good, good, good. All right, next one. Do you believe in the Immaculate Conception? All right, we've got absolutes, we've got yes. Run them through with the javelin, pagans. (laughs) Where's Phineas? We had yeses, we've got absolutes on the Immaculate Conception. Let me read you what the Immaculate Conception is, and I'll re-ask the question. (laughs) You see, I mean, we do. We just go, oh, yes, yes, definitely. Yes, sign me up. I'll take some of that. (laughs) All right. Mary, 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 quite contrary. No, Mary was born without sin. Her mother was Saint Anne. Mary's flesh was without sin. Therefore, Christ is fully human from Mary, who remains an eternal virgin. That is the Immaculate Conception. That is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. But if you marry it with a virgin birth, everyone's like, yes, absolutely. Right? Wrong. Yes, we retract, we renounce the Immaculate Conception, its fruits and its effects in the mighty name. Is that a Catholic thing? Yes, it's absolutely, absolutely absolution. It's Catholic. Let me reread the Immaculate Conception again. Mary was born without sin. Her mother was Saint Anne. Mary's flesh was without sin. Therefore, Christ is fully human 
from Mary, who remains an eternal virgin. Let's look at some medical facts right now. The blood to the baby in the womb doesn't come from the mother. Therefore, Yahushua's blood is not from Miriam, right? Now, Joseph was not his paternal father. So where did his blood and his composition come from? It didn't come from Miriam. It didn't come from Joseph. Therefore, it's not human. And his flesh isn't from the dust. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of Eloah. We need to exchange garments with Messiah who's always been clothed in Yahweh's bone and flesh from heaven. Always. Exodus 24 verse 11. The Son of Man. The first reference to that is in Daniel. And it means deity. The Son of Man was placed in Miriam's womb, the surrogate mother. He had the features of humanity, yet not from humanity's origins, dust. There is no dual nature. There is no tri-natured God-man. Jews know this from the Torah. And it's the biggest stumbling block in your communication and witness of the Malkitzedic Kohen Haggadah, high priest. In fact, if you were to read in your own time, read the Apostles' Creed. It came out in 100 of the Common Era. There is no dual nature in the Apostles' Creed. There had been put no leaven in the lump at that point. The Apostles' Creed came out in 100 of the Common Era. There is no dual nature. The God-man doctrine had not been set in at that time. But now if you forward just a few hundred years to the Nicene Creed, In 325 of the common era, you're going to see now a little leaven in the lump because it says that he was, quote, made man. So the addition of made man came in 325 of the common era. Wasn't there with the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you forward just another 175 years to the... um, Athanasian Creed, excuse me, in 500 of the Common Era, now you're going to see the full leavening of the lump with the dual nature leaven had fully leavened the whole lump. And it says then in this creed, quote, made of the substance of his mother. Now you see the progression. So we've got no dual nature in 100 of the common era. Then they insert a little bit of dual nature in 325. But by 500, we've got full leavened lump. You've got the God-man added. You've got the full God-man doctrine added. A full leavening of the lump. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7. You made him a little lower than the heavenly Malachim angels. You crowned him with Tifereth and honor, glory and honor, and did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection 
under his feet. So whilst he walked on this earth, he was made a little lower than the angels. Hebrews 2.7 is coming from Psalm 8 verse 5 in the Septuagint. It says, thou hast madest him little while lower than the angels. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Yahushua, who was made a little lower than the heavenly Malachim angels for the suffering of death, crowned with Tifereth glory and honor, because he tasted death for every man. That means he tasted. He didn't just like have a little nibble. We have a little nibble of death. No, no. He, he tasted, meaning he appropriated it. He experienced it for every man. He experienced it for every man apart from a lower, of course. Now, the next verses are going to deal with the purpose of Messiah's death. He had to die to bring many sons to glory. In providing salvation for fallen man, Yahuwah chose to bypass the angels. That's the key. He chose to bypass the angels. The Redeemer here is communicating that the, the author here, excuse me, is communicating that the Redeemer is superior to the redeemed. That Yahusha is superior to Israel. That the son is superior to the many sons. He is superior to those for whom no redemption was provided. What does that mean? So he's even superior to those for which no redemption was provided. Well, who, who are they? The fallen angels. He's superior to the fallen angels. He has them under subjection. You think that you and I can have subjection of the new world order? Yes, when we press into his superiority, we will have the eyes, the ears, and we will hear the still small voice to be able to see those big paradigm blocks of enlightenment to shift from the global oppression that the Illuminati agenda is trying to conspire against us all because ultimately the sovereign master Yahusha has those fallen principalities and fallen angels under subjection and those that have no redemption he has them in chains he has them in chains no prevent redemption excuse me was provided for them Meaning that you and I, the redeemed, are superior to fallen angels. And we now have in him superior power over them. We have superior power over them. Exactly. In the sovereign master, we have superior power over them because of his great work. Only in him. But we press into him through the Malkitzedic order, coming into the priesthood, and we recognize the sovereignty of the master, Yahushua HaMashiach. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the Tsar, the prince of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. 
For both he that sets apart and those who are being set apart are all echad. They are one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them Israelite brothers, saying, I will declare your name to my Israelite brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing Tehillah, praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children that Yahuwah has given me. Since the children share in flesh and darn blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Meaning he wasn't, he wasn't a ghost. Don't deny that he came in the flesh like some of the first century sects in Christology. But this verse also does not qualify him as being a God-man. So let's be clear on that. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is Satan, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to slavery. And this is it. We have to understand that the master has delivered you and I from our fears, anxieties, and those things that will keep you captive. Don't be afraid. You see, the world would try and have you afraid. Oh, I'm afraid of my heart, my health. I'm afraid when I lie down. What's the prayer that that they would do to terrify? What is it? And the kids are like, night, night, sleep tight. And the kids are like, my goodness. That's got to be a Catholic invention, surely. How does it go again? Give them a microphone, somebody. Because I don't know that one. Thankfully, I had a lot of bad things that happened to me when I was a kid. But I never had that prayer. Let's do the prayer. Okay. I know, you're First Nations, you were in a teepee. We understand. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I awake, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Amen. Night, night, Mommy! Night, night, Daddy, I love you too! Ah! (laughs) Crazy stuff, isn't it? And you know what? I bet you a lot of parents think that I'm reciting scripture every night when I pray for my child. (laughs) Seriously. Verse 16. For truly he took not on himself the nature of heavenly angels, but he took on himself the offspring of Abraham. You see the connection back to the Malchizedek? 2411, the bone of heaven, he took on us, the offspring of Abraham. These connections are wonderful. So in every way it behooved him to be made like, the key there is like, his Israelite brothers. Human likeness, i.e. he's cloaked in humanity, yet not of humanity's origins. So that he might be of full Rachamin as a faithful Kohen Haggadal, high priest in all things pertaining to Yahweh, to make Keporah a covering for the sins of the people. The people here is Tau Lao, and it is a dedicated phrase from the Septuagint used as a technical term. 
indicating Israel as a covenant nation restored. And that's what we are. We can be that covenant nation restored, but we have to understand how to rightly divide the Torah, and we need to move from a book of the law prosthesis, which the angels administered, to the full book of the covenant regrown limb that is from the bone from heaven. This is an amazing, amazing chapter. Amazing insights, I believe, that the Ruach HaKodesh has given us all through this today. For in that he himself, verse 18, has suffered being tried. Not tempted, as the King Jimmy would have you. That doesn't make any sense, especially when we read James. Being tried, he is able to help them that are tempted. You see, he was tested, he was tried, but his flesh, not being from the dust, had no evil inclination. No evil inclination. So we're finishing up here. Four reasons for Yeshua's descent and death. Number one, to bring many sons to glory, verse 10. Number two, to overcome Satan, verse 14. Number three, to free us from fear, and slavery, verse 15, and to aid and assist you, verse 15, verse 16. You see, we can see so many parallels between our writer and the writings and the messianic expectations, even of the Zadokite community that was down in Qumran. You see, at Qumran, they had a full expectation of the Levi order coming to an end and the ushering in of a new Malkitzedic order through a king from Judah. And this is where I want to finish up with today's teaching, is to show you the expectation of the Qumran community and the audience in Yahushua's time, the audience that the writer is addressing, they had an expectation. And I want to use some, some um, text that are going to bring forth some amazing things to really encapsulate, I hope, this teaching. So bear with me just five more minutes and we'll close. But I want to read these texts because I think it's very important that you and I be able to see this clarity that those in Qumran, that the audience in the first century, they had an ever-present expectation and the reality of how I'm communicating and you and I are understanding the Malkitzedic order of Yahushua. They had a full understanding that this new Malkitzedic priesthood would be offered to the all, meaning the all of Israel, anyone that should choose. They, didn't, they knew that it wasn't going to be just for Judah or just for the 12 tribes, but this messianic Malkitzedic expectation would be offered to the all, meaning the nations, to the all. This was very key to the first century audience. They understood a return to the kingdom of priests and the holy nation offered to all that came from where? Exodus 19 verse 4. How do we know this? Because the Aramaic fragments from the Suda, this is a hard word, how do you say this? Pseudepigraphical, something like that. Pseudepigraphical work, the testament of Levi. 
the Testament of Levi was actually discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, the scroll is um, from K4. It's 4Q541 for those of you that want to research it. I actually have this at home. It's a great thing that you should get. You can download it for free. It's called The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. You can download it online in a PDF. It's a great read. It's the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. And again, it's a pseudepigraphical work. And within that is the Testament of Levi, which I'm going to read you today. But this is supposedly a, um, believed to be a record. In fact, the oral traditions from the words of Jacob's 12 sons prior to their death. So this testament of the 12 patriarchs is the oral traditions of the last words of Jacob's 12 sons before their death. In its entirety, it only survives in Greek, and it dates from the mid-2nd century before the Common Era. So it's old, and it was in circulation in Qumran. They found it, and it was in circulation at the time of Yahushua and at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews. So our audience were very familiar with its writings. And if our author is addressing the transference of the Levitical priesthood to the Malchizedek priesthood, what son do you think he would reference? Somebody said it. Levi. Levi. So we're going to look at the testament of Levi, the last dying words of Levi according to the testament of Levi because this very scroll was found down in Qumran where the zealot community were, where I believe many of our audience came from and you can now see the clarity that you're going to find with the transference of the Malkitzedic priesthood. The testament of Levi chapter 5 verse 1. And thereupon the angel opened to me the gates of heaven, and I saw the holy temple, and upon a throne of glory the Most High. And he said to me, Levi, I have given thee the blessings of the priesthood until I come and sojourn in the midst of Israel. Until means impending change. So the priesthood is going to be given to you, Levi, until I, the bone of heaven, come and sojourn, walk among the sons of Israel. And then there's going to be a change. So this wasn't foreign to our audience, but it's foreign to a whole bunch of messianics today that are so drowning in Jewish dogma and tradition. They just switch switch one religion for another with all of its trappings. You know, all of its trappings. Um, Testament of Levi, chapter 8, verse 14. Levi in the Hebrew. A king shall arise in Judah and shall establish a new priesthood after the fashion of the Gentiles meaning to go to all the Gentiles. And his presence is beloved as a prophet of the Most High, of the seed of Abraham our father. So he's a king from Judah. He's going to establish a new priesthood, and it's going to go out to the nations. 
Is that what the writer of Hebrews is communicating? Yes. It was in the literature of the day. It was the ever-present reality of the audience. Testament of Levi, 18 verse 1. You see, we're several years into this. And it just builds and builds and builds and grows and grows and develops and develops. And there's more scripture, more scripture, archaeology, other ancient texts. And it all comes together to confirm that we are on the narrow path that leads to life. It is truly the rightly dividing point of the Torah. Testament of Levi, chapter 18, verse 1. The priesthood of Levi shall fail. Then shall the Lord raise up a new priest. And to him all the words of the Lord shall be revealed. And he shall execute a righteous judgment upon the earth for a multitude of days. And his star shall arise in heaven as of a king. The Bethlehem star. Verse 9. And in his priesthood the Gentiles shall be multiplied in knowledge upon the earth. And enlightened through the grace of the Lord. In his priesthood shall sin come to an end. And the lawless shall cease to do evil. And the just shall rest in him. And he shall open the gates of paradise and shall remove the threatening sword against Adam. And he shall give to the saints to eat from the tree of life. And the spirit of holiness shall be upon them. And Beliar shall be bound by him. And he shall give power to his children to tread upon evil spirits. And the Lord shall rejoice in his children and be well pleased in his beloved ones forever. Then shall Abraham and Isaac and Jacob exult, and I will be glad, and all the saints shall clothe themselves with joy. So let's recap the Testament of Levi, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 14, chapter 18, verse 1, and 9 throughout the rest of the verse through 14. We find that the priesthood of Levi is until Yahuwah comes to sojourn amongst the children of Israel. A king shall rise from Judah and establish a new priesthood. His star shall rise in heaven as a king, as a sign. The priesthood will make the Gentiles a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all of this connects directly back to Abraham. So Messiah, being a priest and a king, was a very Hebraic and even Hellenistic Jewish expectation. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts attesting to this. So we can truly see that as we go on this journey through the book of Hebrews, we are unearthing so many treasures. And whilst doing that, we have to discard so many traditions. And that is the call of the saints. It is the call to truth and discarding the traditions.